Good evening, uh, Risen Hope. It is good to be with you tonight. Um, Let me start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into the word. Heavenly Father, I am particularly aware of my own weakness in this moment, Father. Standing before your word and the glory of your scriptures, I understand that I do not have the capacity or the ability to rightly proclaim this. But I ask, Father, for your strength and for your grace to come for me, Father, who's speaking these things that are in the scriptures, and for your people, that they would hear these glorious truths and be transformed by them, Father God. That we would know you as the one true bridegroom, that we would know you as the one we were made for. And so I plead with you, Father God, that you would come by your spirit into this room and grant us eyes to see your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. I worried there for a second that the rain was going to keep me from, I had to yell at you and I didn't want to do that. Um, so we've been in a series called uh, He Taught Us Love, talking about Jesus, um, and we've been there the, the last two weeks, really. And in this series, we've been looking at the encounter that Jesus has with the woman of Samaria at the well in Sychar in the fourth chapter of the book of John. And Jesus, in verse 4 of chapter uh, 4, it says that he had to go through Samaria. He had to do it. And we've been saying that this isn't a geographic necessity. He could have gone around Samaria, but he decided to go through. In fact, Jesus had to be at this specific well in Sychar at the sixth hour. This was intentional. This wasn't an accident. This was by design because this woman was going to be there to draw water. And since his disciples had gone into the town, he was alone. This woman comes to draw water and he asks her, give me a drink. He, he wants to get a drink from her as far as she can see. But this is a problem. John tells us that Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. This is a a a deep-seated racial hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And so Jesus is violating this racial barrier between them by asking for this drink. We saw that last week when she shrinks back. He tells her here that she would have asked him for this water if she knew who he was. And if she knew what he was offering, she would have asked him for this water, this living water, this gift of God. And the very first week we looked at this passage, we, uh, we defined that the living water in this text, uh, the, the gift of God, is none other than God himself. Jesus is offering this woman God. He, he's, he's, he's offering this woman the Holy Spirit who would be given to those who believe. And in doing that, he is teaching us love in this passage. He's teaching us love. He's showing us what it is to know real love. Not simply horizontal affections between people, not simply relationships at a horizontal level, but the love of God, which is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is more than physical water. It's, it's the water that our souls were made to drink and to soak up. It is God himself. 
And that's what we see this week. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John 4. John 4, we're going to start with verse 13. Jesus is responding to this woman who's asking questions about the water that he's offering. He says this in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, that is physical water from this well, everyone who drinks of that water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And at this point in the conversation, the woman will completely change the subject. Or at least she, she thinks she is changing the subject. But she is actually only getting drawn deeper into the conversation that Jesus wants to have with her. And God willing, we will see where this conversation goes next week. But today what I want to do is I want to focus on this specific interaction between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Not only because it's pivotal in this conversation, but because this interaction, what happens here between Jesus and this woman is pivotal in our lives. In our lives, in, in our existence, it is pivotal in every single life in the world because this is engaging the central issue of the human heart, the central problem with the human heart. Everything in our lives that is broken, everything in the world that is broken is rooted in what happens in this conversation between Jesus and this woman. And Jesus goes there with her, even though it's painful for her, because he's going there not just for her specifically, but us as well, all of us. In response to this woman's question about his ability to give her living water, Jesus begins explaining in verse 13 what this living water really is, what it does. And he looks at this well that is dug in front of him by the patriarch, the great patriarch Jacob, and he says, that well that's in front of you right now is eternally useless. It has no eternal value. If you drink of it, it may satisfy your physical needs for a while, but you will always come back and you will always come back thirsty because it cannot satisfy your single greatest need. It can't quench the deepest thirst that you have. It is superficial. It's, it's merely physical. Jesus is saying here profoundly that physical needs, think about this, physical needs in this conversation are surface level. No matter how great they may seem to us, no matter how important they may feel to us at a given moment, they are surface level when compared to the vast expanse that is immeasurable of eternal history. No one will say from eternity, I really wish I had this in my life. I really wish I had X in my life. 
this job, this car, this house, this spouse, whatever it might be. I really wish I had that. No one's going to say that. Fill in the blank with whatever you can conceive of in this world that will never be said in eternity. Even the water, I mean, that's what he's focusing on in this text. Even the water that we need to drink to survive. He is saying in this text that in the span of eternal reality, it is nothing compared to the real need of the human heart, which is the need for God. The need to have God. And that's what this water Jesus is offering is. It is God. It is the fountain of living water, which Jeremiah 2 told us a few weeks ago. It's the kind of water that bores into the deep recesses of our soul and springs up into eternal life. And although this woman is doing her best to stay on the surface, to keep things at arm's length by asking her for just a glass of real physical water, Jesus isn't going to offer her real water. He's going to press deeper. He's going to offer her the love experienced in receiving and knowing God for who he truly is. And it is impossible to receive this love as a human being if you are blind to the need you have for it. You cannot see it if you're, if you're blind to the need you have for it. And Jesus is about to expose her sin, her brokenness, her life. And he does that by asking her to bring her husband there to the well. Jesus knows what she's going to tell him before he says this. I mean, he makes that clear here. Nothing in her life is hidden from him. And nothing in our lives is hidden from him. And that's the very reason he is willing to go to this place. He knows exactly how this scene's going to play out. This is not a question to him. And so when she responds with the fact that she has no husband right now, Jesus reveals that he actually knows the full truth. You may not have a husband right now, but you've had five husbands and the person you're living with right now, he's not your husband. Now we don't know this woman's story. We don't know all the details here. The text doesn't provide it for us, but it's safe to assume that five husbands isn't how she'd have imagined her life going as a little girl. It's safe to say that's not how she planned it. It's safe to say that whatever happened was not on the itinerary for her. So how did this, was it death? Was it these men dying? Was it divorce? Was it, uh, were they using her for some reason or was she using them for some reason? We don't know. But what we can say is that there isn't anybody who would look at her situation and say that that's right or normal. There isn't anyone who would look at that situation and say that that's not broken. Now, uh, whether she is, was broken by these men in, in these multiple relationships or whether her brokenness led to these men or, 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 or her brokenness led to these different marriages that she had or something in between, we don't know. What it does tell us is that she is in a rough spot. And so why does Jesus bring this up here? Why does he pull this out? Why does he go there with this woman he's just met? I mean, it's not, this is not where we would go if we knew this. Why does he do this? <clears throat> I 
sorry, <laughs> lost my place. Um, this isn't going to be comfortable for her at all, and it's not going to be pleasant for anybody who sees this. Even us reading this conversation 2,000 years later, we're like, this is awkward. This is not right. This doesn't feel right, but Jesus goes there anyways. Now, why does he do that? Here's the answer. The only way that she can drink of the living water, the only way that her soul can taste the love of the, the, the real, true, living God is if all of the sin and brokenness in her life is exposed to her. She needs to see it for what it is. She has to be real about what has been done to her and what she has done to other people. And it's going to hurt her. It's going to be painful for that to happen. But Jesus loves her enough to do this. Nobody wants the surgeon's scalpel to be applied to their skin before an operation. That's the last thing you want to have happen. But sometimes that is the, the only difference between life or death. Sometimes the only way to be healed is to be operated on and pulled apart so that you can be put back together again. And if this cancerous reality in her soul is not extracted and completely removed, it will continue to destroy her. And Jesus isn't going to let this happen to that woman. He's not going to. By revealing her intimate secrets, her life, so plainly, he is trying to save her soul. But what's going on here is more than simply, her, in her life, like it's more than simply five marriages. It's more than marital indiscretion or, or some kind of relational brokenness or even sexual sin. What Jesus reveals here is more than any one specific sin. What he reveals here is the source of all of her sin. In fact, it is the source of everything broken in her life and the source of everything that is broken in our lives. 2,000 years later. Listen again to the language that Jesus uses in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see how he states that? That is a very strange way to state something she didn't tell you. He tells her, you're right in saying that you have no husband. What you've said is true, even though she hasn't been completely truthful for him and she's trying to hide stuff from him. Now, why does he do this? Why does he commend her for what she says? Here's why. Although she may have been trying to avoid the full truth by only giving him pieces of it, like this one fact that she's not married, she's actually spoken more truthfully than even she realizes. She said something that is greater in its truthfulness than she can even understand or comprehend, and she's revealed more than she's wanted to. In saying, I have no husband, she's actually revealing the greatest need that she has. And it's not a physical husband. It is not a human being. She's had five husbands. She doesn't need another one. She needs the only one for whom she was made, God. That's who she need. It's not in lacking a physical husband. That's not where she's going to find her greatest need met. A physical husband's not going to solve this, as evidenced by the five who preceded this conversation. The root of her brokenness 
is never having the only one for whom she was made. She thought her response, I have no husband, was this flat, surface level, safe response. I'm just going to drop this conversation right here. I have no husband, so you can't meet him. But Jesus says, you're right. What you've said is true. You have no husband. It's actually worse than you can possibly imagine. This is, this is a, a, the woman saying this is a very deep, brutally deep and penetrating self-diagnosis of her problem. Because in stating this statement, statement, she's revealing the root of everything that's broken in her life. All of it comes from this one thing. And this is the central problem of mankind. Whether you're an unbeliever who's been running from God your whole life, or whether you are a believer who somewhere along the path left your first love and started pursuing other things in this world, either of those scenarios, Jesus in this passage is not just applying the scalpel to this woman of Samaria. Jesus in this passage is applying the scalpel to all of us in this story. Jesus knows you. He knows you. Not just pieces about your life that happen visibly. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows all of you. And in this text, as we read it 2,000 years later, he is working through this conversation to remove our own cancerous pursuits of things in this world that will never satisfy. You and I, think about this. We were made to know and to love and to pursue the one true God. Everything else in our lives, everything else in our lives is given to us to serve that singular, primary, ultimate purpose. And yet how often, day to day, are we just like this woman? How often have we pursued things in our lives that will never satisfy but will only leave us empty? And this is the fountainhead of human brokenness. This is where all sin comes from, treasuring anything over God. You want to find the root of a particular sin that you have in your life? It goes all the way down to that reality. We saw this in the garden at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. We see this throughout all mankind in the running centuries, throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And we see this very vividly portrayed in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, who God calls his own people. In fact, the prophets, the, the, one of the main ways they describe the relationship between God and the relationship between the people of Israel, one of the main ways that, that he describes, they describe it is him as the husband, him as the bridegroom. And his people throughout the narrative of the Old Testament are constantly turning their back on him and giving all of their devotion, all of their affections to false husbands, false gods. And yet the constant refrain of the Old Testament prophets is a God who repeatedly comes back to his faithless bride, his own people, and tears them away from these other lovers who only want to keep them in bondage. And he brings them back to himself, to his home, their true husband. That's the story of the Old Testament over and over and over again. God is calling out to his people, return to your husband, return to the one for whom you were made, the one who protects you, the one who loves you, the one who cares for you, the one you were always meant to belong to, return to him. 
And perhaps the most profound passage, in my opinion at least, and I think in many, of this specific relationship between God and his people is in Isaiah 54. So if you have the scriptures, you can turn there. Isaiah 54. Listen to God's plea to his people in this text. Listen to the language he uses as he engages the people of Israel and really his people throughout the centuries. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then in verse 10, he says something amazing. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Amen. That passage is really the prophets in miniature. That passage is, 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 it represents the feeling of God's plea with his people throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. God gives his faithless bride over to the lovers that she's pursued and committed adultery with, these idolatries that she's consumed. He gives them, her, her over to these things in his justice, in his wrath, only to return zealously for her, passionately for her in his love. Keep in mind, they don't deserve him. His people do not deserve him. In fact, they've done, if you read it, they've done just about everything humanly possible to betray his trust. And yet he says to him with everlasting, everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. This is God teaching us what real love is. He is a God who pursues his people despite their sin. He is a God who, who pursues his bride despite her blatant adultery, not because he needs her physically, but because he loves her. He loves her. And just a few verses after Isaiah 54, we see the language he uses to draw his bride back to him. I want you to listen very closely to what he says in Isaiah 55, because you're going to see something of Jesus in this text. Jesus in John 4, verse 1. Come, God says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, he says, 
that your soul may live. That's the call of God to his faithless bride. Everyone who thirsts, come. Come to the waters. Don't labor for that which will never satisfy your souls. In other words, you, my bride, were made to drink of me. And this is precisely how Jesus engages the woman of Samaria at the well in Sychar in John 4. Exactly like this. Jesus, the very one who verses just before John 4 in John 3, the very one who John the Baptist says is the bridegroom who has the bride. That's not a coincidence that this scene happens right after John the Baptist makes this declaration. And, and a woman in this scene says, I have no husband. There's no, that's not a coincidence. It's designed to be that way because God's communicating us this truth. The statement that this woman makes to Jesus is more true and more real than she can possibly fathom. And Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one who is going to give her living water because God in and through Christ enters the world to ransom his bride for himself and to quench her thirst that she has had. And it's, it's an eternal thirst that she has had from the very beginning. But before that can happen, before she can drink deeply of this water, like we've already seen, she needs to see her thirst for what it really is. She needs to have her soul laid bare. Otherwise, she will never drink and she will never love this fountain. And Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman, you've spoken rightly, you've spoken true. You have no husband. And that reality has caused catastrophic damage to your soul to every part of your life. And so he is pleading with her, come back, come back to the one you were made for. And like I said at the beginning, this story isn't just about a woman 2,000 years, uh, years ago. This story is about us right now, today, our need to find satisfaction, to find joy, and not just anything that we have, not just anyone in our lives, but in Christ alone. You and I, we're made for him. We were made for him. That's why we exist. We were made for him. Everything in us was designed by the hand of God to be anchored to the reality of Christ. And yet how often have we pursued satisfaction and fulfillment and hope and life and joy in things other than Jesus? We labor almost every day. I mean, I don't know if it's true about you, but it's true about me. Labor for what cannot satisfy and spend everything I've got, all my energy, all my resources for what is only proven to be a barren wasteland. John 4 is a laser beam of Jesus's focus to infiltrate our hearts and expose our own spiritual adultery. Not just this woman's. He's after us. That's why this text is in the Bible, and that's why we're reading it right now. God is pursuing us right now in this passage. It's not just a story, it is a, a reality that is launching out into our lives and telling us if we want to drink living water, we cannot keep anything from God. He knows it already, and we need to be real with him. Hebrews 4, I think, says it best. 
For the word of God is living and active. Listen to the words he uses here. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Of joints and of marrow. And discerning, listen to this, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. He sees, Jesus sees all that we are, everything about us, our thoughts, our desires, our affections. And so let's go back to John 4. In order to free the Samaritan woman from her cancerous pursuit of love and affection in all the wrong places, in repeated marriages, in the arms of a man she's not married to, he exposes her darkest secrets because it is the only way for her to be saved. And so let's take that reality and turn it to our own lives. What is it in our lives that we regard as an ultimate treasure? What is it that we pursue? that has taken the place of Christ in our lives? What is it that we treat like the husband, like our, the love of our life, such that if it were removed from our possession, it would virtually be the end of us? What do we have in our lives like that? What would, if you were with Jesus at this well and it wasn't the woman of Samaria, what would he have revealed to you? What would he have said to you? What is it in our own souls? And think about your own heart here. Think about the things you struggle with. What is it that you have plunged the roots of your soul so deeply into that if God were to try to remove it, he'd have to remove you too? Is there anything like that in your lives? And before we write this off as just, that's somebody else's problem, we need to recognize that this woman did not know how broken she really was until Jesus laid it out for her. She did not have the, the fullness of that knowledge until Jesus exposed that reality and now he's turning to us in this text. And so as we look at this, as we start to close, don't allow this story to float above you in some abstract way as though it was just something that happened one day. It is meant to invade our lives and bring about confession and repentance in our own hearts. This isn't just about the woman in Sychar. Everyone knows this thirst. And our desire to fill it with things that we're, we're never meant to fill it is the main problem with the human heart. We have this instinctive desire in us to fill the void in our souls with something other than him. So what is it for you? Is it, is it career? Is it financial success? Is it security? Is it, is it owning a, a nice car, owning a nice home? Is, is it vacations? Is it travel? Or is it small things like playing video games or, or watching TV? Are those the things that are drawn, your life is drawn to, you spend your time and your energy on? None of those things are bad. But neither is having a husband for the woman at the well. They are made deadly by how we treat them. And here's the reason why. And I mean deadly. I mean deadly. God is either ultimate in our life or he is nothing. He is either everything to us or he does not have his right and appropriate place and it is meaningless for us to say we have him. This is the real test. 
What do we spend our, our thoughts on? What do we spend our affections on? What do we spend our time and energy focused on? This woman had five husbands and was living with a man who wasn't her husband. That's a lot of time and affection poured out for other people. And it revealed just how broken she really was. So for us, what is it that we give our devotion to? What is it that we, we spend our time to? How much of our energy is focused on pursuing Jesus in a given day? And how much is allotted to other things that we would never say we value more? But if someone were to look at the checkbook of our life, they would say, well, it's clear that you value these things more than Christ. And Jesus is here at the well pleading with us right now. Let go of false treasures. All that we've labored for in this life that is disconnected from Christ will in the end prove to be eternally worthless. It will have no meaning in the expanse of eternity. You will look back on it in shame. And he's saying here, come back home. Your maker is your husband. Come back to the one you were made to know and you will find in him an unfathomably deep well that will always satisfy you, that will always bring you joy. A well that in fact cost him his own life to purchase because Jesus doesn't stop in Samaria and live there. He goes past Samaria, finishes his course of ministry, and then he goes to a cross where he will pay for his bride's hand with his own blood. It's called the gospel. And so in the next few moments, as we sing and worship and participate in the Lord's Supper, and you can grab uh, the single communion cups out there carefully to participate, um, I want us to focus on the words of Isaiah 54. That line, your maker is your husband. That is not small. That is not trivial. That is not a side item on the entree of Christianity. We are talking about your ultimate treasure. The one you find joy in. The one you are in love with. And it matters eternally. Do we belong to him? Does he have our heart? Are we gripped by his reality? And if you find yourself not there right now, or if you find yourself struggling with, with, with false um, loves or false pursuits, I would just ask you in the quiet of your own heart to confess to him what you've given your life to and plead with him for this living water. Ask him to give you this living water and I can promise you he will. He has removed every single barrier between you and this water. He is faithful and just to give you the water that he's purchased with his own blood. And he is desiring us to turn away from, by his grace, by his, his power, his, his mercy through the Holy Spirit, turn away from the false promises of this world and come back to the one we were made for. And when you do that, when you come back to him, you will hear him say to you this, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall never be removed from you, my precious bride. Let's pray. Father God, you are a gracious and precious God. 
Your, your glory and your worth and your beauty are unsurpassed. You are infinite in wisdom, in holiness, in righteousness, in splendor and in might. There is nothing like you. There is nothing like you. And yet we have a front row seat to our own frailties, to our own sin, to our own intoxication with other loves in our lives. We have a front row seat every day to our spiritual adultery, how we've pursued things in vain, barren wastelands that will never satisfy. And and I'm pleading with you, Father, right now, for your grace in the cross of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for that reality to be made known to us, for us to have capacities in our hearts, for us to say, it's wrong. I don't want to pursue this anymore. I don't want to be caught up in this or that. I don't want to feel the need to love these things. I want to be free from that, Father God. And I pray that you would take the living water of your reality and pour it out onto the dry, barren, parched earth of our souls. Dig up the stones in our lives that have kept that water from falling all the way down and create in us a clean heart filled with your Holy Spirit so that we can know your love. We can never love anyone rightly unless we know what it means to be loved rightly. And we find that love in you. Thank you, Father God, for this. I ask that you would do this in the next few moments. In the name of Jesus, amen.